Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through a journey of the best bits from The Body by Bill Bryson, a guide for occupants. Bill Bryson, enormously popular author. Uh, His most popular book is A Short History of Nearly Everything, where I guess he goes through nearly everything in history, chapter by chapter. This time, he's going through the human body, chapter by chapter, dissecting it and telling us all the things we need to know about the body. If you took your trolley through Bunnings and tried to assemble the human body, the raw materials, it costs about £200,000 or about $400,000. But in reality, you might be able to get these raw materials and these chemicals and everything like that, but there's no way the smartest people on earth could come close to putting them together in the right way that forms a human being. It's pretty bizarre. In our body, there are 7 billion, billion, billion atoms that make up a human being. Uh, That's a hell of a lot of zeros, an almost unfathomable number. But all of those billions of billions of billions of atoms, none of those things are alive. It's some miracle, I guess, that they all work together and eventually form a human being. Even if you had all of those things and tried to mix them up in in your little science lab, you still couldn't create a human. So, in the science lab, we can't put them together. But the one thing we do understand is the thing that actually gives the instruction manual for these atoms to start assembling themselves in a certain way and that's dna and dna is in the heart of the cell's nucleus and it's really there to exist for one reason and that's just to create more dna so a dna molecule is made up of two strands connected by rungs to form that twisted ladder that you see everywhere on your science books and from the dna's point of view they probably think that the human exists for the passing on of dna whereas we think DNA is there to pass us on because DNA is really there for 10,000 years, much longer than that we're going to be here on the planet. DNA is pretty good. It knows what it's doing most of the time, but there are every now and then a few little errors. The error rate of DNA is, is pretty phenomenally low. It's about one error per every billion copies that it creates. But that one error, that one variation, that one mutation, that leads to potentially very big changes in what a human ends up being from that one tiny little piece of DNA that's got this one little mistake can have big changes. And these variations is really the things that drive on evolution when one of those small changes for some reason acts better in the environment and the ecosystem and can survive better, then that will go on to pass it on to future generations and all of a sudden you've got more species uh, roaming around the planet. So evolution has put together a pretty seriously good body which we're about to be talking about in this episode. And if you look at it like a machine, think about it, 24 hours a day for about eight decades, your body is just keep running and running along, your heart pumping and pumping and pumping without you really doing much to service that body. It's pretty wild. It is a true wonder how good the body is, that it, it never stops, it never takes a break, it's always working and we do a lot of things wrong by the body. You know, we eat more than we should. We exercise less than we should. We, we drink alcohol. We smoke cigarettes. We do all these crazy things to our body. But still, we sort of end up all right. Our, our body sort of forgives some of those errors that we make and powers on anyway. There's some really unhealthy people out there. And they're just still moving along, moving along well into their 60s, 70s and 80s. And I think they're just a, a testament to the human body how the human body can really just keep going on the circumstances. It doesn't matter how much junk you eat, suicide by lifestyle, it takes a very long time. Your body is a very robust piece of machinery. We sometimes take for granted there's a hell of a lot going on the microscopic level of us. 
We're actually home to trillions and trillions of these tiny living things that are doing a hell of a lot of good for us. They provide us with about 10% of our calories by breaking down the food that we'd otherwise not make use of. And it extracts all the nutrients that we need in our bodies like B2 and B12. These microbes that are inside us, scientists know very, very little about them. It's impossible to grow them in a lab. They only exist within the human body. Of course, these microbes don't have a mind of their own. They don't know that they're working in service of the human body. They don't think, oh, there's a bit of food here. I'm going to break it down and give the the big dog up there a bit of energy. That's just what they do. That's their job. They go about doing their job and that's it. But Bill Bryson says that we've got about 40,000 species of different microbes living inside us that call our body home. Altogether, it weighs about three pounds. That's a hell of a lot of weight of just little microbes, isn't it? It's kind of, he says it's a bit like an organ, but we don't really see it as an organ because it's spread out all over the different parts of our bodies, but it provides as equal amount of service to us as an organ would. And one of the things this microbial organ does is fight off a lot of disease and infection and uh, has good bacteria that serves a, a lot of functions for us. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff. There's the good stuff we talked about that are extracting the vitamins and helping us, but then there's also the bad stuff that gets into our body and can uh, cause a few problems. So throughout history, scientists and researchers have been trying to find ways to get rid of that bad stuff. You know, something someone sneezes, it goes from one person to the other, it gets into your body and starts to cause a bit of chaos. So how do you get rid of those things? And in the early 1900s, the great man Ian Fleming, who ended up winning the Nobel Prize, he was in, he went on holidays one day. He came back from holidays. He found out that he'd been a bit of a mess. He'd left a few of his jars and, and slides open. And he found this stuff growing on there after his two-month vacation. And stuff was growing. And he, he did a bit of research. And he found that these spores of mold had grown into something that he needed to find out a little bit more about. He was a pretty astute dude. And he saw that the bacterial growth in this dish was inhibited. So there was some weird shit going on with this mold that was growing in his petri dish whilst he was away and over time he realized that the power that might be held in this and this is how he by pure chance and coincidence came up with penicillin and this is the thing and this is probably one of the biggest discoveries that humans have ever come up with because it gets rid of all bacteria um, which is a huge strength but also a bit of a weakness as well yeah and Maybe an economics term might be a blunt instrument in that it affects everything where this you take a dose of this penicillin and it wipes out a whole bunch of bacteria. Unfortunately, it's not targeted to just wiping out the bad bacteria. It wipes out everything. So, of course, getting rid of the bad stuff is a good thing, but you're getting rid of some of the good stuff as well, which, of course, is a bad thing. Yeah, Billy says it's nuance, as nuanced as a hand grenade. And us people in the Western world... By the time we've reached adulthood, we've taken 5 to 20 courses of antibiotics. So, we've taken 5 to 20 hand grenades in this organ. We're, remember, it's got good and back, bad bacteria. When we put a grenade in there, it just blows the, everything up. And the effects might be cumulative. So, each generation, there's fewer and fewer microorganisms left because of the hand grenades we're passing on to future generations. So, this organ... Our microbial organ is uh, in pretty bad stead at the moment. Through all of these different courses of antibiotics we take, yes, there's the positive benefits, but then there's this cumulative effect of these negative benefits. Sometimes if people take a, they start taking their course of antibiotics, maybe they're meant to take it for, for 10 days. After seven or eight days, they're feeling better again, so they stop taking it. If they don't fully wipe out 
the bad bacteria, that bacteria can start to become immune to the antibiotics and it almost strengthens these bugs and they can turn into superbugs. So it means that if some of these diseases or some of these bad bacteria become resistant to the antibiotics and over time they build up almost an immunity to this, these antibiotics, then we're in serious trouble. Some kids already are resistant to antibiotics altogether, even when they're taking it for the first time. So they're born, they reach five or six, have their first infection, never had antibiotics, do it for the first time and it just doesn't work on them because the previous generations have cooked it all up for them. Really interestingly and quite alarming that recently the rate of antibiotic withdrawal, so antibiotics that completely ineffective to the infection they're trying to kill, is twice the rate of new introductions. So that means there are more antibiotics that are ineffective being released than there are ones being effective. So if you play that out over time, there's really going to be no antibiotics left for us to actually use. Another crazy thing that he talks about is that uh, the agriculture are feeding antibiotics to animals. In some part, I guess it's a way of trying to cure some diseases, but it's also uh, maybe a bit conspiratorial that it fattens them up a bit. And obviously, if you've got a heavier cow when you sell it, you're making more money. So if you so if you pump a cow up with a bit of antibiotics and you make a bit of extra money at the end, but then when we're eating that meat, we're taking on some of these doses of antibiotics that the cows have taken. And it just seems like this bizarre spiral of just antibiotics flying around the whole world through our animals through different people and the bugs could win in the end absolutely so 80 percent of the antibiotics are given to the farm animals and it's really a breeding ground for these microbes and these infections to sit in the animals and really gather up their strength and resistance in there so it's not a really effective use of antibiotics from a human point of view in terms of this negative feedback loop in 1945, when penicillin was first used, all it took was 40,000 units to get rid of these infections. Today, because we've grown them to be so much stronger, it takes 20 million units for the exact same result. That's a 500-fold difference in strength and dose that we need to an explosion that we're putting into our stomachs. Yeah, if we're dropping those hand grenades into our body at 500 times the rate as we used to in order to wipe out the bad stuff that's potentially 500 times more good stuff we're wiping out as well of course definitely if in 40,000 units is the analogy of a grenade 20 million (laughs) you're probably looking at actually a nuclear bomb aren't we (laughs) yeah I know it's not a good thing that we're dropping in so Bill says something needs to be done we're looking at the possibility where we can't do a hip replacement or some kind of routine infection or some kind of routine procedure because the risk of infection is way too high If this spiral is too far out of control, we could be going back to the days of the plagues or where someone gets walking along the path and they get scratched by a thorn and it could be game over because we can no longer kill those bad infectious diseases. Yeah, it's a catch-22 not trying to take antibiotics. I had a skin staph infection and I went to a naturopath rather than a doctor because I heard about all this antibiotic stuff. And the naturopath gave me these um, these drops of stuff to put on my tongue. I don't know what it was. It was like the... (laughs) Uh, it was like Harry Potter stuff, like the horse of the the hair of the horse and the, <laughs> yeah. all this kind of shit. Anyway, I did that, and then it just kept getting worse, and I kept going back to the naturopath, and she goes, "Yeah, no, don't take antibiotics. It takes." At first, she said one day to kick in, then all of a sudden it was, "Oh, it'll take six days to kick in." So I'm like, "All right, you're, you're full of shit. Sorry, lady." And then, unfortunately, I had to hop back on the antibiotics, and 
by this stage, the infection went from my arm all the way up through to my chest. So I put a lot of trust in this naturopath and uh, it didn't work. So had to take antibiotics, unfortunately. Did you do the full dose? You did the full uh, the full cycle? Of antibiotics yeah. or the full horsehair? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the full cycle of antibiotics. Yeah. I, I, okay, went, that's I, I went the full cycle a few times. That's good, yeah, because I... When we, uh, back in season one, we went to Bali for the first time. I came off a motorbike, <laughs> uh, came home. A motorbike's probably a, a stretch as well. It's not really. It's a little. <laughs> it's not a, it's not it's a, a tiny scooter. <laughs> and then so ended up flying home, getting on the antibiotics. And you, and, uh, you were a bit misleading as well. Motor, it sounds like you were <laughs> streaming down the coast of partying Indonesia, partying. on the back. And no, you were sitting <laughs> and you went to hop on your bike and you... With your one leg over and you fell over and the bike <laughs> fell on you in a very uncoordinated manner. It wasn't it wasn't pretty, but I thought uh, oh, I ought to be fine. Left it in the tropics a little bit too long, didn't get it cleaned out properly, ended up coming home and got on the antibiotics as well. And by day seven or eight, I was like, it's all better now, it's all fixed. And I thought about giving it up, but thankfully there was a some wiser head said, no, nah, just finish off the last couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's easier said than done. Bill says we have to do something about it, but... When that disease hits you, uh, it's you need antibiotics. Yeah. Don't you? you need to you need to throw <laughs> a few you need to throw a few hand grenades or nuclear bombs in there just to blow it all up and keep moving. When we were looking at the food that goes into our body, the types of nutrition that we take in, the only way that we measured in the past was through this one metric of a calorie. Now, calories are a pretty weird way to measure dietary intake. I think what it means, you said, was like the amount of energy required to heat one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius or, or something like that. Uh, so it's a bizarre measurement and it's not even that accurate because calories, I guess, are not equal. Different calories can mean different things. Yeah, calorie by itself is a meaningless term. My brother, he's a little bit better now, but he's one of the types and a lot of people are out there like that and they look at the recommended daily intake of 11,000 kilojoules or whatever it might be. Is it about that? Maybe closer to 8.8, I think. Say it's 8.8. Yeah. 11, they, yeah. They look at that and then they'll go to Macca's and, and buy their large quarter <laughs> pound of a cheese meal and it gets them up to 9,000 and then eat nothing for the rest of the day <laughs> and think they're that healthy. Sounds, that sounds sane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something you, you do? No, I haven't done it in the past, but I can understand that that if you're only looking at this as the one metric of then it makes sense but that's a big error for sure so some calories are shockers like that and then some calories are completely misleading uh, if you eat a lot of almonds for example it might be 170 calories of that but a whole bunch of them just pass through and don't do anything and you're really only using up 130 calories of the 170 yeah, so Bill's saying that if you just look at the amount of energy inside the food that goes into your mouth, you're not telling the whole story because, as you said, the different types of food mean different things and then just because it goes into your mouth doesn't mean that that energy actually gets taken up by your body. So what Bill says that rather than just looking at the calorie intake, obviously there's a whole bunch of fundamental different components of the human diet. There's the macronutrients, the micronutrients, water, and then we can talk about breaking those down a little bit further. you fats, proteins, carbohydrates, your vitamins and minerals, and then obviously taking a hell of a lot of water as well. So vitamins being things that were once or alive, so things out there like plants and animals and minerals, these are things that are inorganic, so they come from soil and water. So altogether, we must get about 40 of these little particles in our food because we can't go out there and manufacture them themselves. Again, like most of this book, 
Bill says that you know these vitamins, this idea of vitamins, it's ill-defined. We don't know a whole lot about them, but what we do know is that there are these 13 different vitamins, these odd little things that exist in the world somewhere, and we as humans need to take them in in order to function properly. We think of them as you know vitamin B and vitamin C and vitamin D. They're just all these things out there in the world, but really they have very, very little in common aside from the fact that we need them all as humans in order to function properly. And a lot of us take the easy way out. We don't get them through foods. There's a huge supplements industry out there who just get a pill and just whack the word vitamin and mineral on it and they sell it to you for about $40 billion a year and that's only in the US. <laughs> so there's 87,000 different dietary supplements in this. And of course, that we can suffer from having not enough of the vitamins and minerals uh, and we can also suffer from having too much of the vitamins and minerals. So if we're eating too much, like say iron, for example, if you don't have enough iron in your system, that's a bad thing. If you've got too much iron in your system, that's a, a bad thing as well. So we need to find that Goldilocks zone of not too much, not too little in order for all of our tissues and all of our organs to work together smoothly. The other thing we take in is proteins. So these are pretty complicated molecules and one-fifth of our body weight is made up of them and there's a million different types out there that have been found and they're all just made from the same core uh, 20 amino acids. So protein deficiency, it's really not, not an issue if you have meat. It's a little bit more difficult for those who are vegetarians and you know, be a bit more careful about how you take your protein in. Carbohydrates is the next big macronutrient. Carbohydrates are all a mix of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, so C, H, and O in various different proportions. So these are bound together in different amounts to make all of these different types of carbohydrates. And virtually all carbohydrates come from plants. We eat a hell of a lot of carbohydrates, but we also use it up pretty quickly because these are the most easily accessible, the most readily burnt to provide energy for us. And then, of course, we've got fats, and these are made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, a bit like carbs, but in different proportions. And this is, as we all know too well, it's really stored in different parts of the body for the days when we need fuel. Because we evolved, remember, uh, with scarcity of food, and we really needed that fat. But today, with no scarcity of food, we can just like stack it on and stack it on, and um, there's going to be no day when we're going to need it. And your body is all too happy to hang on to this surplus fat just in case. And then there's water. We consume around two to two and a half liters of water per day. Not having enough water is dangerous. But of course, water, which seems so harmless, drinking too much water can be super dangerous as well. So there was a story in 2007. There was a young girl from California. She was doing this radio competition. She had to drink six liters of water in three hours. It seems like a lot, but not too much. It's yeah. not too much, no. Yeah, she died. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's no good. And there's often stories of like, say, people doing big hikes or people uh, doing the Kokoda track where they think, you know, in the tropics, they're going to sweat a lot. They're going to need to take in more water. It's grueling physical exercise and they end up drinking too much water. And what happens by drinking too much water is that the kidneys can't take it all out and it dilutes the sodium levels in your body to dangerously low levels. So everyone's got a bit of a different opinion on the breakdown of food and nutrients and everything that you need to take in. And I think there's a lot of confirmation bias out there. If you're a vegetarian, I'm sure you'll be able to find all the research to support you. If you're a meat eater, the same thing. But the problem with all the dietary studies out there is the people who eat food with the mixture of oils, fats, 
good and bad cholesterol, sugars, salts, and chemicals of every description. But as they're all mixed together, it's really hard to control for one variable to work out what's actually making the contributions. And then you've got the other variables, like how much the people are doing exercise and drinking and when you're carrying fat and your background and your genetics and all this kind of stuff. So it is at the core got some weaknesses, a lot of the medical research on the food out there. But the one thing that we all know is that there's one big culprit that is a, that causes huge dietary concerns and that's sugar. Sugar is linked with a hell of a lot of diseases. The most notable, most obvious one is diabetes. There's no question that today we are eating and drinking way more sugar than we ever have in the past and it's getting to ridiculous proportions. Bill says that the average American puts down 22 teaspoons of added sugar a day and he says for young Americans, that's over 40 teaspoons a day. That's a lot. That's a lot. 40 teaspoons. Jesus. Yeah. He says the recommended by the World Health Organization is five. So, we're going 8x every single day. That's pretty cooked. And it doesn't take much to go over that limit, that recommendation of five teaspoons a day. He says that one single can of soft drink or soda, you're already at seven and a half. So, you're already 50% over your daily Mm. limit just from one can. And complicating the matters, and you'll know this if you've seen the documentary That Sugar Film is, there's a lot of sugar lurking in the stuff that's marketed and what you think as good stuff. So if I think back to cereals growing up, I used to be convinced that cornflakes, Nutri-Grain, I wouldn't say Cocoa Pops, but... <laughs> <laughs> not Cocoa Pops. Not Cocoa Pops, but cereals like that, I thought these are bloody good things and uh, my mum told me to make sure I'm eating the cereal and all that. If you look at the packaging now, it's absolutely ridiculous the amount of sugar that's in it. And yeah. people are convinced that this stuff's good for them still. Yeah, well, Nutri-Grain, and I'm sure there's a equivalence in um, other countries as well, sponsors the Ironman, which is the, the wild athletes who go out there swimming, riding, running. The, you know, the Nutri-Grain is the fuel of the Ironman. So, you think, oh, yeah, as, when you're an eight-year-old kid, wanted to go and play <sighs> footy and play cricket, yeah, I'm going to smash it, this Nutri-Grain. It's just sugar. Yes. <laughs> So, he is crock of shit. I used to just eat the Nutri-Grain as well. I think one of the worst ones is recently, this is going a little bit off track, but in Coles, Big M had a four-star health star rating, mm. a Big M because of the protein intake. Yeah. No so, good. <laughs> so, and this is not in the, in the book here, but what's compounding it and making it worse is obviously a lot of the sugar industry are getting in there to the heart association and whatnot and uh Throwing a few little misleading bits of research and yeah. uh, a bit of conspiracy in there yeah. as well for <laughs> we you, Asha. We always love that. Uh, but as you said, the sugar, that, that, that's the obvious stuff, the lollies, the, the chocolates, the soft drinks. But there's also the things like the breads, the salad dressings, the spaghetti sauces, a lot of these pre-made, pre-packaged uh, products that we think are you know, just normal stuff, you know, bread and pasta, that's pretty normal stuff to eat. But there's this sugars hidden in there for it seems like no reason at all. You don't need it in there, but obviously it makes it taste better. And to humans, we then we, we want to buy more and then a bit conspiratorial again, but uh, it's not good for us. So if you're going to be super healthy, I think the cards are really stacked against you because even the fruits and vegetables of modern agriculture, they're nutritionally less good for us than what they used to be. So there's a massive difference between 1950 and today. Modern fruits are 50% poorer in iron than they were only 70 years ago. That's a huge drop. 
Yeah, they're also 12% down in calcium, 15% down in vitamin A. There are all these things that by the, the modern agricultural practices, obviously to maximize the yield from the crops, uh, they're actually the foods themselves are getting less and less nutritious. And Bill says that between 2000 and 2010, so in that one decade, the amount of vegetables eaten per person dropped by 14 kilos per year on average. So not only are the foods themselves becoming less nutritious, we're actually eating less and less of them as well. So we're getting the double whammy there of eating less food and the food we do eat is getting is not as good for us. Yeah, and, and the most popular vegetable out there by a huge margin is the, the French fry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you get <laughs> on the tasty, side with your, your hamburger and then uh, <laughs> that's your vegetable intake for the day. Yeah, you get a bit of slice of lettuce, maybe a bit of tomato. Yeah. Hamburgers are pretty healthy, aren't they? Well, when I was younger and extremely <laughs> unhealthy, it's, I used to get the wop, the um, the Whopper without the, the lettuce and tomato. And yeah, no pickles. No yeah. pickles. <laughs> yeah, we're, a bit, we're a bit better now. But remember... So, you're statistically going to go down the gurgler if you do the wrong thing, but the body is very robust and it doesn't mean that eating horribly is absolute destiny with food. About 40% of people with diabetes are as fit as a fiddle before they get it and 20% of people live to ripe old age sitting in front of the TV eating whatever they want and they've got nothing to worry about. So, it's a statistics thing, not a destiny thing. Yeah, so you mentioned the couch potato there. The one part of the equation of uh, our health is the food and the inputs that we're putting in and the other part of the equation is the exercise and the, the movement of our body. And so scientists have shown, and it's, I guess it's probably pretty obvious as well, that exercise is good for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this I think some of the value of the book. You always hear it, but love a few stats in there just to mm. really back it up. And he's got a lot here. Regular walks reduce risk of heart attack or stroke by 31%. It's a very big number. And there's a huge study here of 655,000 people in 2012 showed that being active for just 11 minutes a day after the age of 40, it's not a very long time, is it? 11 minutes, not at all. It's getting up and just going to the bathroom and yeah. to, to the fridge pretty much. <laughs> but, but they've got 1.8 years additional in life expectancy. And for those who are active for an hour or more a day, a 4.2 year increase in life expectancy. For me, sometimes I worry about the waste of time of doing 30 or 40 minutes of high intensity exercise. It probably adds up and just stacks up directly into additional years mm. lived if you did the math on this additional four years. Mm. And I'm sure the quality of those four years is a lot better as well. Absolutely. Uh, and it's not only just the living longer, but exercise also strengthens your bones, it boosts your immune system, it nurtures your hormones, it lessens the risks of getting diabetes and cancers, it improves your mood, it improves your mood. There are all these positive benefits of getting up from the chair and just going for a, a, a little walk. So a bit like the food, we, the science is out there, but we're not doing really the right thing. Only about 20% of people even manage a moderate level of activity. And a huge majority actually get nothing done at all, really. The average American today walks about a third of a mile each day. That sounds extremely low. That's less than a K. That's like what, six, seven hundred meters. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> he said that even some companies were rewarding employees if they got like a Fitbit or some kind of pedometer. If they racked up a million steps in a year, they'd get rewarded 
uh, through work. But when you do the math, that million steps a year, it's only 2,740 steps a day. So we're talking like just over a mile and we're talking nowhere near the recommended 10,000. Yeah, it's nothing. And uh, quite funnily, some of the workers who who had employers who were incentivizing this way, they distracted to the dog in the morning and <laughs> let the dog run away. <laughs> and they just get the, the car to work, up the elevator, straight to the desk, home, back to the couch, and uh, rarely up to the fridge to grab a beer and then back on the couch. And that's the <laughs> exercise for the day and get the bonus at the end of the year. So, not a bad idea, yeah. I think. Well played. Yeah, well, well played, but obviously not good for us in the long term. If you contrast the average American office worker to modern hunter-gatherer societies, they're walking each day 19 miles or 31 kilometers. And you can probably expect that our ancestors from the past hundreds or thousands of years were racking up similar numbers. So, if we're going down now from an average of 31 k's a day to the average of a third of a mile a day, uh, that's a big, big, big drop-off. And it's all going in the wrong direction. Today, the average woman in the USA weighs as much as the average man in 1960. That's pretty crazy. So, the weights of the female has gone from 63.5 kilos average to 75.3 kilos. Huge increase and no different for the man from 73.5 kilos to 89 kilo, kilogram average. That's a Yeah, that's some serious increases over you know five or six decades to be going up, what's his percentage-wise? Quick, quick math, about 20%. That's yeah. a big, big, big increase. So, we are very fat. There's no getting around it. We're really fat. Australians, Americans, most of the developed country really. Mm. And it's costing our healthcare system a ridiculous amount as well. In the US, about $150 billion per year. One interesting thing that he talked about in the book as well is the dangers of sitting. And then he said sitting for extended periods of time, whether that's at your desk during work or at the couch at night, is very, very bad for you. And I guess the more alarming thing was that it doesn't matter what other exercise you do. If you go out there and run 10Ks in the morning and then you sit all day, you're still just as bad as someone who doesn't run 10Ks a day and sits all day. It's pretty bad the impacts of sitting can be on your health. It's probably worth going out there and getting a stand-up desk. Yeah, I think we should get, get out there and have a quick break now and have a quick walk. Well, we've got a stand-up <laughs> desk right next to us. We've never used it. We're always sitting, so maybe next week we'll, we'll do that. It all starts with conception and birth and this little sperm that goes on this heroic journey, the astronaut of the human biology, and it goes hunting in the male burst of pleasure, which is really a rocket launch on the way through to find that little egg to begin all of life. On one hand, they're the heroes of human biology, they're the givers of life, but on the other hand, Bill says they're complete blundering idiots. They seem completely ill-equipped and ill-prepared for the one and only task that evolution has given them. Their only task is to swim and find an egg and do its thing, but it just gets in the womb and seems like it's got no sense of direction. It's poor swimmers and it's having a crack, but it's really not getting anywhere unless it gets lucky. This act of conception has recently had a few things going against it. Between 1973 and 2011, our swimmers, us, our male swimmers, they're really down by 50%. That's pretty cooked, yeah. It's a pretty bad, bad number, isn't it? That's horrendous to drop by half in, what's this, 40 years. It's not a good. Big one. But it's, no, again, no one knows exactly, but most likely plastics, cosmetics, couches, pesticides, and all the products and shit we just put into our body. So that's from the male side of things. And then from the female side of things, 
women are having kids later and later and later and this is as the number and quality of her eggs actually diminish. So, the odds of conceiving are going downwards. Yeah. The, in Britain, the average university graduate female is having the first birth at age 35. So, obviously, because we're in we're studying longer and women are working in their careers and building up and putting off having kids. At the age of 35, 95% of the stock of eggs have been exhausted and the 5% that are remaining are more liable to have faults or surprises like multiple births or other issues and complications at birth. And because in our modern world, things are getting easier, our diets are getting somewhat better, we've got more readily accessible macronutrients and micronutrients, the female body is actually starting this process earlier. He says that the since 1980, the age of puberty in females is dropped by 18 months. And in fact, 15% of girls begin puberty at age 7, Oof. which is very, very young con- compared to you know 15 in, in centuries gone by. So, this it's almost this worst case scenario, this collision that where females are starting puberty earlier, their eggs are starting to be re- released earlier. We're putting off having children until later. And at the same time, us blokes, have, we've lost 50% of our sperm count in the last 40 years. So, it's a real pretty bad concoction for the future of the human race. A good thing to keep in mind. I think it's a really big deal and something we've got really no idea about. Let's just say it all goes well and you ejaculate the sperm and it goes on this launch through and finds the egg. It produces what they call a zygote and... This produces 10 or so cells at the very start. So, you just begin as 10 little cells. Really hard to fathom that all of us at one stage were just 10 cells and obviously, we don't remember any of that. But from there, it kicks off and after 280 days of in the womb, you pop out and you're a baby. One thing scientists don't know still or they're still trying to find out is what triggers birth. So, we know that there's this 280-day gestation period but it's seemingly there's no big massive instant change that goes from, okay, the baby's inside to the baby wants to come out. That's something that still scientists are still trying to work out. What actually triggers the birth at the point of time when that baby's ready to come out? So, when we come out, we leave the, the womb quite sterile but then on the way out, we're swabbed with our mother's personal complement of microbes as you move through the birth canal. If you think about back to earlier in the episode, how important this microbe is and this is the gift that we get on the way out and it's an extremely important process. But some forms of childbirth like cesarean are really robbed of this initial wash. They skip this process and the microbiome from the very start is, uh, is not in the best way. It's a bit hard for me and you to talk about this and cesarean because there's obviously a lot of reasons why a cesarean is is absolutely vital. And I think these days they actually get the placenta and rub it on the baby as well. Oh, really? They do cesarean. They do something like that. I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because uh, I, I don't want to make a comment on something I don't know too much about. But they say that uh, the C-section, a, a baby born via C-section actually has dramatically increased risks of type 1 diabetes, asthma, diseases, obesity, eight times more risk of developing allergies. So, these things are uh, obviously not good things. And on top of that, the bill says that about four out of ten babies are given antibiotics during the delivery, and you know we spoke a lot about antibiotics at the start, and that's not a good thing. So all these things are going bad. I was a I was a C-section baby. I've gone oh, right. Yeah. I've gone right so far. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. We'll see. There you go. Well, we'll see, and if the the type one diabetes and the other diseases kick in later. 
Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully not. Fingers crossed. <laughs> There's a conversation here between a doctor and a surgeon. The doctor says, what did you operate on Jones for? The surgeon says, 100 pounds. The doctor goes, no, no, no. I mean, what had he got? And the surgeon goes, 100 pounds. <laughs> Good it's delivery. Weak. <laughs> it was not bad delivery. It's pretty weak. Before the app, you were saying this is a really funny joke. And I thought it was a great joke. <laughs> I think it was my right. delivery. <laughs> no, no. The delivery, no, it's not the delivery. The joke's just a bit weak. <laughs> but I see what it's saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think it's funny. <laughs> and in context, it has nothing to do with the next sentence we're about to say, but I think it's a, we had to shoehorn that in there. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's all about you know medicine, doctors, the good and the bad and the ugly, and it's not a bad one. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But so, in terms of the good, by one reckoning, the life expectancy on Earth has just been going gangbusters. In the 20th century, it's been wild. The average American life went from 46 in 1900 to about 74 in 2000. Mate, that's a lot of years. That's a hell of a lot. That's a lot. And then, even in other countries as well, the the growth has pretty been the growth and the advances have been pretty wild as well. You know, there's a lot of global success stories where lifespans can increase. 40 to 60% in just one or two generations, which is enormous. One thing to note when we're talking about life expectancy is it can be a misleading statistic. It doesn't mean that if the expectancy was 46, they just got there and they're looking like the grandpas are today and they yeah. just keel over and cark it. It's actually because there's a lot higher rates of childhood mortalities which drives the average down a lot much further for everybody. Yeah, if you're putting a lot of zeros into that average, then it gets dragged down a lot. And then if you cut the zeros in half, then obviously that does pretty well for the, the rest of the, the average, as it were. So childhood mortality 1950 was 216 kids died for every 1,000. That's unbelievable. That's yeah. And today it's 38.9 for every 1,000. So if you're having kids in 1950 there's a very good chance that they're not going to make it. So, it's quite a courageous endeavor. So, the bottom line for these improved lifespans is that firstly, yes, the statistics are skewed somewhat by these childhood mortality issues and by fixing a lot of these issues, you know, we're cutting it by what, one-fifth or one-sixth. That's very good. That's very good. And at the same time, medicine has progressed to a way that we're able to treat a lot of the diseases that would often, you know, we might catch a bug and we die, whereas now we can treat it and then we're living longer as well. There are two things that are going to help you with life expectancy. The first one, it's going to really, really help if you're rich. Yeah. Quite interesting. If you're middle-aged, exceptionally well-off from a high-income nation, the chances are you're going to live well into your late 80s. But if you're poor and you exercise just as much from the same country, you sleep as many hours, you have a healthy diet, but you just simply got less money in the account, you're going to die 10 to 15 years sooner. The second thing that Bill says is don't live in America. (laughs) (laughs) He says that America as a country, as you know, the strongest nation in the world is actually horrendous when it comes to medicine and healthcare. It's unbelievable that 20% of all the money and GDP that America's earn goes toward maintaining health. And although they spend the most in the world on healthcare, they're, uh, they deal appallingly in terms of global standards. They're 31st in terms of life expectancy behind countries like Cyprus, Costa Rica, Chile, Cuba, and Albania. And a lot of it is because of what we were saying earlier, that health, the food and the exercise and all that kind of stuff. But then the cost of healthcare is just ridiculous. You're not going to be able to afford a lot of it as well. Yeah, if you're looking at 
the American diet, there's oversized portions. If you're looking at American exercise, there's very little activity. If you're looking at uh, the rates of accidents, getting hit by a car or getting killed by a gun is significantly higher. But then when you're looking at things like hospital visits and other treatments, one example he pulls out is an angiogram. And in Canada, it's going to cost you about $35. But if you're right next door in the USA, it's going to cost you $914. So obviously, this ridiculously high barrier to routine healthcare is significantly negatively impacting upon American lifespans. So those, those things are going to affect your life expectancy and medicine is going to go a big way of helping us getting to a longer lifespan. But there's a huge problem when it comes to medicine and that's overtreatment. Whereas most of history is focused on making sick people better, what we're doing today is a little bit typical of a hypochondriac. We're obsessed with all about prevention sometimes when it's not even necessary. Treatment for things like breast cancer is obviously a big, a major procedure. And Bill says that one in three women with breast cancer receive treatments that may meet, that may leave them mutilated and shorten their lives unexpectedly. And if you think about the mammograms, the scans that they're doing, they're pretty fuzzy things. They're pretty hard to read. And he says that they don't even save that many lives in that for every 1,000 women who are screened, four of those women will die of breast cancer. If you compare that to a 1,000 women that are not screened, five will die of breast cancer. So, that screening process isn't saving a hell of a lot of lives is what he's saying. I'd, I'd probably still get the scan anyway and I'd rather be in the four than the five. Mm. But even still, it's not a massive, massive improvement, is it? No, and it's a lot of resources spent in giving out those mammograms to save one life out of every 1,000. So, maybe it's worth it. One thing that I don't think is worth it after reading is probably the prostate screening. Prostate cancer is something that he says all males probably would get if they lived long enough. Some stage, you're going to get a bit of cancer in the prostate. Yeah, he says that most people, if they're living to 80, they'll die of something unrelated and find out after the fact that they had prostate cancer as well, but it wasn't that, wasn't that bad. So, a lot of it, we get it, but a lot of the cancer we get there might be benign, but if it's if you got a bit of cancer there, you don't know if it's benign or not, you're going to go to all lengths to get rid of it, aren't you? Yeah, I would for sure. I still would. I'd still go for the screening when I hit that certain age, get the finger up the up the butt just to get the check. Yeah. I think I, I wouldn't discourage people from doing that. Well, if you look at the numbers, I'd, I'd probably like to challenge you here, Asho. About 20 to 70% people after they get that finger up the ass are incontinent. And... Uh, <laughs> wait. Hang on. They're, not, they're, they're incontinent from the procedure of removing the prostate cancer. Yeah. Not from the finger up the butt. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. very true. And uh and impotent from the finger up the butt and the procedure. <laughs> so you go through all this thing and you get these huge costs. But again, for every one thousand men screened for prostate cancer and all the side effects of all the procedures, and again, only one life is saved. So it's very great news for that one individual, but not so good for the rest of the lives of the, the blokes who can't get it up anymore in the bedroom. Mate, by the time you're 80, 70 or 80 anyway, I don't know how many times you're getting it up anyway, are you? I think they're still going. Are they? I think Maybe you'd be, I think you'd yeah. be surprised with the, the older, <laughs> well, I, I older so. crew. Yeah, I hope so. So, they've whacked a few numbers against all the unnecessary treatment. About $765 billion a year, it's been estimated. So, it's a quarter of healthcare spending is wasted on just pointless stuff. In Australia, there was a study, there was 156 common medical practices that were probably 
ineffective or unsafe. Yeah, I'd say it is, it is important to look at that just because a medical student reads something in a textbook that was written 40 years ago and they say this is the way to do it, that doesn't necessarily mean that the science and the research hasn't progressed since then. So I think it, it is important that anyone who's involved in that field is constantly learning, constantly looking for better answers and not just relying on the, the research and the textbooks that were written in the past. And I think you get to look at the pharmaceutical companies as well. They're a company, they're trying to make a profit and they've got huge budgets in their marketing and ways of influencing doctors out there. So they're designing some drugs, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do but having no net benefit. For example, the drug Atenol is designed to lower blood pressure, which it actually does, but the people are still dying in the same amounts and it just means that these people, they've got better blood pressure numbers when they die. In 2011, an interesting milestone in human history was passed. More people died from heart disease, stroke, or diabetes than all infectious diseases combined. So we're living in an age now where we are killed more by our lifestyle than by the scary world that's outside of our bodies. So we're basically choosing the way we die, but without any real reflection or insight. So it's going to happen to us all. There's 160,000 people who die each day which is 60 million people a year. Sounds like a hell of a lot, but it means 0.7 deaths per 100 in a given year. In one sense, is about a 0.7 to 1% chance of you dying in a year. I'd take those <laughs> odds. I'm pretty happy with that. Actually, now that you mention it that way, that's pretty high. 0.7% chance of dying in the next 12 months. Might be lower for us. Be lot, yeah, actually, yeah. No, that's true. I'll, I'll, think that's, I'll take those odds. The average grave when we do die is visited for about 15 years after you're buried and put in the coffin, but your body's still going to still remain in that coffin in a pretty good state for about five to 40 years. So even when people stop going to visit your body, your body's still going to be there in a pretty good state. It's pretty, uh, pretty morbid, but it's been pretty good your whole life, but then you're gone and then that's it. 